Magna Carta. Great Charter. It's a name which every schoolchild in the Western world has come to know. Britain doesn't have a constitution, but the Magna Carta has come to symbolise the freedoms and democracy which is embodied in modern Britain. Every modern constitution in the world, from the United States of America to France, and even as far as field as Japan, has drawn some inspiration from this remarkable document. Even our own Queen has been known to quote from it, saying in 1976 that Britain has thrived in modern times because it adheres more closely to the principles of Magna Carta. But what exactly are those principles? It may surprise you to know that there is no single Magna Carta. There were in fact at least seven. The original draft lasted just weeks before being withdrawn and revoked. And what of the villainous king who caused the Magna Carta to be written? King John has probably the worst reputation in royal history. He's literally used as the benchmark by which all other bad monarchs are measured. But was he really any different to his predecessors? After all, the struggle which caused Magna Carta to be written was not ended with the death of John. It continued on and off. For many years, it was not fully resolved until 1267, a full 50 years after King John had died. In this episode, we're going to look at this remarkable few years between the death of the Lionheart in 1199 to the death of his brother John in 1217. 18 years, which shook England to the core. 18 years, which would go on to redefine the nation more profoundly than ever before, and set it on its course to modernity. A time in which a scrap of paper signed outside of Windsor would go on to reshape the world as we know it. Monarchy, England, and the whole world would never be quite the same again. King John inherited the greatest empire in Western Europe. That's not patriotism talking, but plain fact. His father, Henry II, had built up a formidable realm, known to us in the modern world as the Angevin Empire. You could literally walk from Scotland to Spain without leaving his realms. Richard the Lionheart had then built extravagant and formidable castles across the French estates in particular, meaning that the odds of Aquitaine, Normandy and Brittany ever being returned to the French king were exceptionally low. There were few enough people who had the military muscle which would be required to take it from the Plantagenet family. John also inherited a huge amount of power when he became king. Ever since the Norman Conquest, all of the rules and the laws which had been developed were focused on the relationship between the Norman ruling elite and the Saxon peasants. And what that means is there have been many changes to things like local justice, law and order, land ownership, the duties of the tenant and the duties of the landlord, all addressing the relationship between the Normans and the Saxons. But there have been no developments in the balance of power between the ruling elite themselves, between the king and his nobles. 
And this means that while Parliament had been created as a concept, it had no power over the king himself. It was designed to help rule the country, not to limit the will of the king. Now this doesn't mean that the king was absolute. Remember that the barons of England themselves ruled over extensive lands and estates, they held great fortunes, they all retained private armies. So the king always had to work with his barons, because if they didn't, the barons would simply fight against him. But Norman kings had ruled by the principle of vis et voluntas, and that means force and will. In other words, if they had the strength to force people to do things their way, they would. And if they didn't have the strength, they wouldn't. It's a very crude political philosophy. But there was nothing which, in theory, they were not allowed to do. But although he inherited a great empire, and although he inherited vast power, at least in theory, there was one problem he faced. King John wasn't technically the rightful king. There were no succession laws in the 13th century, and to make things more complicated, John inherited many different lands. The Kingdom of England, the Lordships of Ireland and Wales, the Duchy of Normandy, the County of Anjou, and each realm had their own succession traditions. And that meant that when Richard the Lionheart died, they each picked a different successor. England and Normandy chose John because he was the most senior member of his family, being the last remaining son of King Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. But John was also the younger son of Henry II, and his older brothers had had children. Anjou, Brittany and Aquitaine decided that the son of John's older brother Arthur was the rightful ruler. Incidentally, if you followed our modern succession laws, then Arthur would certainly be the legitimate king, not John. This was not a peaceful age. There had been very few peaceful successions since the Norman Conquest. War was expected of new kings, because it gave them the opportunity to demonstrate their abilities. The French king was the arch-enemy of the Plantagenet family, and had been humiliated on multiple occasions by Richard the Lionheart. He threw his support behind Arthur, meaning war between John, Arthur and the King of France was now inevitable. The world waited with bated breath to see if John could live up to his brother's illustrious reputation. But then nothing happened. In fact, John negotiated with the King of France. He agreed to pay homage to him for his French estates in return for the support of the King of France. John's enemies in his French lands couldn't fight on without the support of the French king, so they simply gave in. Even Arthur of Brittany himself, who was only 13 at this point, simply accepted that John was king. Today we'd call this a major success. John had claimed his empire without bloodshed, and he'd secured it. But to the medieval world, he had missed the opportunity to assert himself over his enemies. He gained the nickname Soft Sword for his supposed weakness, and of course a name like that carries a lot of innuendo and an implied lack of manliness. For two years, John ruled in peace. We tend to think of King John as the mad tyrant, the villain of Robin Hood. But between 1199 and 1202, there was relative peace and stability throughout his empire. There was no tyranny, there was no mass taxation. In fact, if anything, 
John displayed the qualities of kingship which would be highly valued today, and which were demonstrated by his father before him. He worked extremely hard to make sure that his administration machine was incredibly efficient, that his bailiffs and sheriffs were hard-working and educated, that accurate records were kept, and that the ability and power of the royal household was expanded. And he also relied on an increasing number of new men, that is to say, educated people, who were appointed because they were good at their jobs, not because they were powerful or titled. But there is an obvious problem which arose here. All of his successes in expanding on royal power, increasing its efficiency, meant that the old privileges of the aristocracy were being stripped away. Suddenly, if you were an earl, you would not get everything you want simply because of your position. And if you were an earl, you probably wouldn't like that very much. And when you remember that these earls and barons were also powerful military figures with armies of their own, you can see why the situation began to get quite dangerous. And it would be his barons, the old aristocracies, which would see John's empire unfill. John decided to marry a noblewoman called Isabella of Anglume. Isabella was said to be extraordinarily beautiful, but she also owned lands between Poitou and Gascony, which were seen as incredibly strategic to anyone who wanted to wield power in Aquitaine. Isabella was already betrothed to Hugh of Lusignan, a member of the powerful Assetian family, who were incredibly influential in John's French estates. Hugh appealed to the King of France to prevent John from marrying his fiancée. Philip Augustus, always ready to humble the Plantagenet family, summoned John to Paris. But John refused to go. He claimed that he was the Duke of Normandy, and the Norman dukes had always been exempt from French king's summons. The result, rather predictably for the Middle Ages, was war. And I mean, in many ways, this was a war which had always been waiting to happen. England and France had been fighting when John gained his crown. The peace which John had struck with Philip Augustus was an unwelcome surprise, and the two kings were simply too often rivals to seriously contemplate a lasting peace. Most people in Europe would have put their money on John being victorious. After all, both his father and his brother had been renowned military leaders. The English kings had been vastly more highly regarded than their French counterparts for well over a hundred years. And John's French estates were protected by the impregnable castles which Richard the Lionheart had built. And indeed, initially John seemed to roar ahead with success. Although John was not particularly popular in his French estates, the French king was disliked even more, so many of the barons simply didn't take part in the fighting. Arthur of Brittany had raised his army against his uncle, However, the entire leadership of Arthur's forces, including the young prince himself, was captured at the Battle of Marbu in 1202. John then demonstrated his ruthless side. The captured nobles were treated little better than common prisoners, to the extent that 22 of them died as a result of the conditions of their imprisonment. Rumours began to circulate that Arthur of Brittany was also dead, and that John himself had killed him. 
According to one story, the king first got blind drunk before storming to the young prince's prison, castrating him, blinding him, and then murdering him. It's worth remembering that even these awful atrocities were not unusual in the age. After all, Richard the Lionheart had killed over 2,000 people in Acre. But atrocities were usually committed against the poor. John's crime was that he was not distinguishing in his treatment of the rich or the poor. He was being just as ruthless to the wealthy and to the titled, and that was too much for his barons to bear. More and more, barons in his French estates abandoned him, until eventually he was forced to return to England to seek more support there. But with the king himself apparently abandoning his own cause, Philip Augustus moved in. In a shocking attack, he captured the mighty Chateau Galliard, the most powerful castle in all of John's realms, and the fortress which has always been said was impregnable. Within months, the whole of Normandy was lost. The union which had existed between the kings of England and the Duchy of Normandy was over. The Angevin Empire was gone. John would not accept his diminished status on the European stage. For the next ten years, between 1204 and 1214, he would devote all of his energy to regaining the Duchy of Normandy. In fact, his abilities truly are quite remarkable. He reformed the mustering process and the way in which armies were financed, with incredible success. But with great armies comes a great bill, and John was beset with difficulties in raising the huge sums of money needed to support his invasion forces. Remember that up until 1204, John could call upon the revenues of half of France as well as that of England, but now all of that income was lost to him. What proceeded over the next decade was almost farcical, as armies were raised, taxes were levied, then the barons would kick off at the huge tax bills they were given, so John had to keep his armies in England to keep his barons at bay, only to miss his invasion opportunities. And those forces which he did send to invade France were invariably smaller, weaker, and much less successful than might have been otherwise. It's also important to remember that by 1204, many of the barons in England had little or no connections with the old Angevin Empire. They had no personal stake in its revival, and therefore they were loath to pay huge taxes to fight for it. In 1205, John was forced to fight another war, but a spiritual one this time. The Archbishop of Canterbury had died, and John and the Pope each selected different candidates to succeed him. The question was now raised, who governs the English church, the king or the pope? This was not a new argument. The role of kings and the role of the papacy had been battling on for centuries. But by the 1200s, both kings and popes had been centralising their powers, and both of them were keen to flex their muscles. John banned the Pope's candidate from entering England, and he seized the property of the Archbishopric of Canterbury. In response, in 1208, the Pope placed England under interdict. 
Now this was about as serious as it gets. The church was forbidden from performing any ceremony, with the sole exceptions of baptism and the confession for the dying. It meant that in England, people could not lawfully marry, they couldn't go to Mass on Sundays, they couldn't celebrate Christmas or other feast days, they couldn't even have a funeral for their loved ones. By 1209, as John continued to ignore the Pope's attempts at negotiation, John himself was personally excommunicated. And this meant not only was John condemned to hell by the Pope, but also that it was considered right and just to depose him. He lost his divine status as king. Remember that John's barons were already furious with him over his heavy taxation and his humiliating defeats in France. Now they were told that they had a religious imperative to overthrow him. By 1213, with John still stubbornly refusing to relent, the King of France was given papal authority to invade England and overthrow him. With yet another invasion of France fresh on John's mind, he agreed to submit to the Pope. England was reduced to a vassal state of the Holy See in return for the lifting of his excommunication. In the war over church supremacy, the Pope had certainly won. In many ways, the submission of England to the papacy was actually a very clever move by John. In an instant, he had removed the church hostility which had been weakening his control over England and hampering his ability to invade France. And because England now technically belonged to the Pope, the Pope was also transformed from a hostile enemy to a staunch ally, and he immediately halted the gathering French invasion. But to many barons in England, John's actions were infuriating. They had been denied their official religious life for the past six years, and because John had promised huge sums of money to the Pope in return for his support, even more taxes were now levied against them. And it was, of course, humiliating to see their country officially reduced to vassal status. John had only agreed to the Pope's demands so that he could launch another attempt at retaking Normandy. But within months, it became obvious that this military campaign would end just as disastrously as the many he had fought previously. Eventually, John signed a peace agreement with France and even promised to pay the King of France for peace, meaning even more taxes would be needed from the barons. What all of this means is that for the barons in 1214, they had been paying exuberant taxes for over a decade. They had witnessed national humiliation and the loss of England's prestige and a collapse in its income. And they had absolutely nothing to show for it. John's popularity was in shreds. By 1215, it was very obvious that they were organising a rebellion against him. Now, John wasn't blind to their discontent. He knew that his barons were smarting from heavy taxes, and so he needed to find a way to win them over. His father had enjoyed great success by organising the first parliaments in England. So John called a council at Oxford to discuss widespread legal reforms in England. Now, at first, many supported the king's decision, believing him sincere. However, it gradually began to spread that John was simply buying for time. In fact, he had requested the aid of the Pope in suppressing the rebels, and he had even declared his intentions to become a crusader. 
Now, he had no intention of going on crusade, but it was an excommunicable offence to rebel against your landlord if he was a crusader. So effectively, John was just buying himself some protection. And John's duplicity ruined the last remaining trust that the rebels had in him. A huge army was gathered, which progressively captured Lincoln, Exeter, and finally even London itself. And once the capital had been taken, huge numbers of John's barons defected to the rebels. The barons declared that they had renounced their feudal vows to the king. In other words, he was no king of theirs. John himself was barricaded in Windsor Castle at the time. His own English Chateau Galliard, Windsor Castle was a powerful bastion which offered him safety. But he quickly realised he risked losing his whole country if he failed to come to an agreement with the rebels. He requested a meeting with the barons in a meadow just outside of Windsor, a small hamlet called Runnymede. The agreement signed at Runnymede was radical. Never before in the history of England had a king agreed to be governed by law. Tradition? Maybe. Religion? Perhaps. But never law. After all, kings made law, how on earth could they be bound by it? But on that June day, 1215, John agreed that no man should be imprisoned without a trial, even if the king wished it that access to justice should be quick and affordable, that taxes should be raised only with the approval of the barons, and that a council of barons should be established to ensure that the king governed within the law. This was the very first example of checks and balances being introduced in the country. Now, it has to be remembered that these rules were not offering universal rights to everyone. They favoured the aristocracy. They were a reaction to the fact that the nobles had been treated as badly as the commons, and it was an attempt to prevent that. Peasants, serfs, slaves, they would continue to live in degradation for many centuries yet. But for the first time, a principle was established that no one, not even a king, was above the law. The power should be shared, and that rulers, however powerful, should be accountable. Power in England would never be quite the same again. What most people don't realise is that almost immediately, both sides, not just John, but both the rebels as well, revoked Magna Carta. The king instantly appealed to his new vassal overlord, the Pope, and the Pope instantly excommunicated all of the barons who had forced the king to sign it. To the Pope, in fact to most rulers of Europe, this charter overturned the natural order of things. It upended the feudal system. And the barons themselves realised that John would never realistically implement all of the reforms they wanted, so they refused to disband their armies and refused to surrender the city of London, both of which were conditions included in the Magna Carta. Within months, almost everyone had forgotten all about Magna Carta, and far from being a great rallying cry of liberty and freedom, it was pretty much forgotten. Those who remembered the signing would have remembered it as a brief interlude, a temporary truce, not the beginning of a revolution. War was resumed between King John and his barons. John almost immediately lost the north, 
the south was persistently raided by the French, and even Windsor Castle was placed under siege. John took to travelling between cities and towns, desperate to put down rebellion to try and rally support, doubting the loyalty even of his own armies. Frankly, he had too many enemies and not enough support to put down the opposition to his rule. His money dried up. Some people said that he ate only peaches and drank only cider, since that was all he could afford. In Norfolk, he tried to flee Nottingham, but his entourage got caught in an estuary, and most of his possessions, including the crown jewels of England, were lost. He caught dysentery, and it was as a sick, poor man that he finally reached Newark Castle, with barely a hope of regaining his former power and prestige. On the 18th of October, 1216, King John died. His country was still in the grip of civil war, threatened with invasion as well. Royal authority was almost non-existent, it had been crushed, and the royal household was bankrupt. His son and his heir was Prince Henry. Henry was nine years old. John's reign had lasted 18 years. In that time, England had been transformed from a European powerhouse, a great empire, into a small, poor, vassal kingdom, which was isolated from Europe and ripped apart by civil war. Often you hear of Magna Carta being this defining moment of English greatness. The reality is there was nothing great about England in 1217. Nothing highlights the balance of power more than the fact that throughout the rule of Henry II and Richard I, fighting against the French had occurred in France, but under John, the battle site was moved to England and the Channel Seas. England was on the defensive, while France would go on to become one of the most powerful countries in the West for the next hundred years. In John's own lifetime, the Magna Carta plays a noticeably small role, considering how famous it has since become. The Magna Carta had lasted just weeks, and subsequently was refuted by both sides. At the time, it was considered no more important than any of the treaties or agreements made by kings to stave off a rebellion. And why had the rebellion broken out? It is true that the barons endured significant taxation. John was also more than happy to punish his barons, and they were stripped of many of their previous privileges. But we have to be careful not to overly romanticise this era. Remember that, yes, John was bad. He had murdered his own nephew, he had incarcerated barons without trials, he had levied taxes without approval. But in doing so, he was acting exactly like all of his predecessors had before him. I think there's two key differences between John and his predecessors. Firstly, John, for the most part, was in England. So whereas Richard and Henry II had often behaved in much the same way that John behaved, 
they were only in England for a few months at a time. But of course, John lost his French empire, so he was always in England, and therefore his influence was always felt. But secondly, Henry II and Richard the Lionheart had been successful. John was not. The loss of most of the Angevin Empire, the reduction in the status of the Kingdom of England, and the failure of John to include the barons in his decision-making, all meant that the barons were enduring hardships with no obvious gain or result. So Richard had taxed his barons to high heaven, but he then made great conquests, offering his barons more lands and money in thanks for their support, bringing them glory and prestige, which came with victory. And John couldn't do any of that, so his popularity plummeted. There's also another significant change which happened in this period, and which may have impacted on John's unpopularity. For the first time, we see the beginnings of the English language. Now, it's not quite the language we recognise today. You wouldn't understand it if you heard someone speaking it. But it was a language that was not Anglo-Saxon, either. It was a mixture of Saxon, Danish, Welsh, and Norman French, for the first time, we can really start to recognise an English identity forming, where people, even the barons who still spoke French as their first language, considered themselves English, not French. To really put this into perspective for you, remember that we're talking about the fifth generation of Norman barons. So their grandparents would have had little affinity with England. The grandparents would have spoken French, oppressed the Saxons, held lands on both sides of the channel. But by 1215, the barons only held lands in England. They'd grown up in England. They spoke French, but also English, and they had little vested interest in reconquering Normandy. They didn't know the place. And this change of mindset among the barons is not often given its full credit by historians. But it's crucial to understanding how Magna Carta came to be. Gone were the days when the aristocracy spent all of their time and all of their interest in France. Now they were English, and they wanted their king to stop trying to regain his French estates, and to focus instead on ruling England. They needed some form of constitution, and it's in this context which Magna Carta emerges. But as we've seen, the Magna Carta did not achieve the great reforms that the barons demanded, not in 1215. By 1215, the country had collapsed into anarchy and civil war. The French were poised to invade. The prince, charged with dealing with all of this mess, was a nine-year-old boy. I highly doubt many people believed their own words when they uttered the phrase, Long live King Henry III.'" 